Welcome to Inside COP26 with me, Sophie Schnapp, on Clydeport Radio. Inside COP26 is a daily broadcast from the heart of the pivotal climate summit, COP26. Each day, we'll be providing you with digestible snippets of the goings-on around COP. From unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone, where the climate negotiations take place, to the underground and inspirational fringe events around the city of Glasgow. Alongside my co-hosts, Tori Choi, Love Sega, Sally Milhook and Hayden Thorpe, we will be talking to scientists, activists, artists, musicians and more to be your eyes and ears inside and on the fringe of COP26. Our intro music is a track called Losing My Head by Hot Chip. Losing My Head was donated to Earth Percent, a charity who is partnering with our show Inside COP26. The musical intervals of the show is a song called Dawn Chorus by a musical visionary, Osmo Sheldrake. We'll move over to our part on the green zone and fringe events to provide you with some inspirational content from around Glasgow. Hello, um, so I've been following you around for the past two weeks now and um, for, for the past two weeks I've been very inspired by your actions, by what you've been doing and... Gracias a ti. Um, um, firstly, can you just tell me your name and what you've been, what you're doing here at COP and where you, like, you're the institution that you're with? Bueno, yo soy Calfin Lasquenche. Soy de la Minga Indígena, que es un colectivo de organizaciones y comunidades que, que bueno, ya llevamos trabajando más de 10 años y que lo que busca es visibilizar las voces de las personas que no tienen vinculación político-partidista y que vienen desde los territorios más afectados por el colonialismo moderno y las malas prácticas gubernamentales. So, my name is Calfin, I represent La Minga, which is a collective of indigenous uh, groups and communities um, who, together, as, 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 a, as a collective, um, look to essentially um, form part of a an effort, a calling to action to go against the, uh, you could say, the forces that are in this moment could be you know, perpetuating climate change and against the forces, governmental forces, um, in order to bring forward you know our perspectives and the, the significance of our life. And last two Sundays ago, I saw you at a ceremony with Nicola Sturgeon and you asked, you gave her over some demands and you asked her to take that to the table at COP and, and have, have those demands been listened to and do you know if they've been taken to the tables as she promised? Bueno, nosotros elaboramos un documento año a año que es, es para entregársela a todas las personas que tienen injerencia en materia política. So we create a program uh, every single year um, which relates to kind of the implementation of, of, of the policies that we're, that we're suggesting. Y, el, y la carta entregada a la primer ministra la hemos entregado también a todas las otras personas que tienen capacidad política e injerencia en la negociación climática. So, in, you know, we've 
approach Nicola Sturgeon as well as all of other individuals that have a political significance that are uh, in, involved with the major decisions that are taking place. Y bueno, nosotros, la minga indígena está fuera con la sociedad civil porque precisamente la minga indígena lo que busca es generar actos de reconocimiento y solidaridad entre los pueblos. So, the minga indígena is actually in many ways separate from kind of the civil society. We're, we're looking to create moments in, of reconciliation amongst, amongst people and amongst those that are those that are involved in, in, in implementing these kinds of policies. Somos más de 130 delegados de diferentes territorios, todos ellos de mucha importancia biológica. 330. No, y que representan espacios de mucha importancia biodiversa. And we represent a number of different biodiverse uh, areas of biodiversity. Y nuestra postura es que entendemos eh, que los gobiernos no van a lograr un acuerdo respecto a, a mejorar la situación climática. We're very aware that the, the governments are not going to reach a conclusion that is going to be sufficient in order to be able to tackle los, climate change. Los acuerdos los tenemos que hacer nosotros, la familia humana con el mundo espiritual, el mundo vegetal, el mundo animal con el universo entero. We have to be the ones that make those decisions and the ones that bring together, you know, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom and the human kingdom in order to be able to actually reconciliate all these different forces. Con toda la con toda la el universo and, and of course to reconciliate with the entire universe nadie confía en que los gobiernos van a llegar a un acuerdo porque los gobiernos ni siquiera dentro de sus países son capaces de llegar a acuerdos we're aware that the governments are not going to be able to achieve any kind of uh, important conclusion as to how to tackle climate change because neither within their own countries are they able to implement those changes. Y el acuerdo climático debe ser aprobado por unanimidad entre 196 países. And also because an agreement has to be reached between 190 countries and one. Eso es una utopía. Uh, and that's a, a utopic ideal. Que solo demora y que solo eh, ilusiona a las personas y evita que las personas también sientan que nadie está haciendo algo. Ellos no están haciendo nada, solo están montando un circo que tiene sus elementos bien marcados y llevan más de 26 años en ese circo. And these, um, this situation essentially is almost creating an illusion which gives the impression that some kind of change is actually taking place but it's 26 years of the same process taking place with no, no decisive action. Obviamente hay personas que tienen muy buena voluntad dentro y que están buscando generar acuerdos y llegar la negociación al punto más humano. There are, of course, a number of people within these negotiations that are, you know, volunteering and doing their very best to be able to get the negotiations to a point that, to, to, you know, to their zenith. Pero hasta hoy toda la negociación ha estado marcada por la relación política y la relación económica que tienen los políticos con los grupos económicos y las corporaciones internacionales. But the truth is that the relationships that exist and that form part of this whole entire ecosystem is based on the economic and political relationship that all these parties share. Y nosotros como humanidad tenemos dos cosas, sentarnos a llorar o ponernos a trabajar. And what we can do is, as, a human, as humanity is sit down and cry or we can actually get to work and take action. Y aquí estamos trabajando. And that's what we're trying to do and what we're working on. So what can, what can people like me, what can I do and what can people 
around the world who are beginning to be part of the climate fight, what can, what can we do to engage and to help and to make change? La Minga Indígena es una manifestación del colectivismo y la solidaridad principalmente. La Minga represents as, as a collective um, a, a, a force of reconciliation and bringing together of people. Que nace de relaciones profundas de respeto, reconocimiento y amor. And which comes out of respect and love and recognition for each other as human beings. Y... Y bueno, aquí todos estos delegados están durmiendo en casas de familias, invitados. All the delegates that we've brought um, are sleeping and staying um, in houses of a number of different hosts um, here in the city. Están durmiendo, están comiendo en la iglesia con gente que viene de las casas a cocinar por turnos. Um, the delegates are, for example, also eating in the church next door, which is being cooked, food that is being cooked by neighbors and individuals that live in, in, in this city. La, doni la comida en gran parte donada. The majority of the food is all donated. Los traslados a los lugares son en autos de madres, de jóvenes, de ancianos que dan de su tiempo libre para llevar a las personas. Donadas. Even the vehicles that have been uh, donated or the trips that are being given you know, to pay, take, take out delegates across the city is all by mothers that are taking time out of their school run for example in order to be able to allow these people to get from one place to the other Esas son alianzas. this is what an alliance is it, de humanidad. it's a it's a manifestation of humanity and this is again a manifestation of, of, of the love and the recognition that these people have in their hearts um, of the participation of the Minga at the COP but any other COP that has taken place and one day this seed is going to of course bear fruit por eso es importante que nosotros generemos fuera esos lazos con la sociedad civil a través de los medios de comunicación que se note que el mundo también quiere generar cambio y no está depositando toda su confianza y su fe dentro del espacio de negociación and this is why it's very important that we use any kind of um, outlet that we have be it media but also also you know being involved physically so that people feel that they are involved in the entire negotiation and they're not placing all their fate and their reliance on on the cop uh, in order to be able to generate change y esas son las maneras de generar estos apoyos y estos lazos de hermandad donde la humanidad debe trascender sus diferencias económicas, sociales, políticas, raciales, religiosas. We're in a moment where we need to be able to transcend all the differences that we have, be them racial, religious, ethnic, uh, in order to be able to create change. Lo mismo en los pueblos indígenas. And it's the same with indigenous populations. Deben aprender a conocerse, reconocerse y respetarse en toda su, nuestra diversidad. Uh, all the communities, all indigenous communities also have to learn to be able to reach that level of reconciliation with one another. La, la, la diversidad es la base de, del entendimiento y, y de la paz, finalmente. And the diversity is the strongest thing we have, and it's the, um, the, the, what represents an ability to be able to reach um, elements of peace. Todo hoy día se torna económico. Todos los acuerdos que se están generando son a través de la negociación de carbono y de las propuestas de Red Mar, Red Plus. All the negotiations that are taking place are about carbon emissions. It's about how much we're actually releasing into the atmosphere and whatnot. Y la alternativa, lógicamente, que la sociedad va a llevar no es esa. La alternativa es la justicia climática, que también es social y racial. Um, and this is not the only change that we need to be able to assume as humanity. It's also in relation to, um, you know, being able to smooth out the differences that we perceive between one another. 
ahí está contemplado no solo los derechos de la humanidad para un acuerdo climático, sino también de la naturaleza, del mundo animal y de las religiosidades. Uh, and also to, of course, release a, a reconciliation with regards to nature and, and all the other aspects that, that form part of it. Thank you so much. That was more than amazing. And thank you for everything you've done. Hello. Welcome to No Music on a Dead Planet Cop TV. My name's Sophie. I'm Sophie. What's your name and how are you? <laughs> um, hi, my name's Nick Lunch, and uh, I'm a director and co-founder of Insight Share. We're based in Oxford, been going for just over 20 years now. Um, we specialise in uh, media, capacity building with indigenous groups, um, particularly through participatory video. That's the method we use. And when indigenous communities uh, invite us, They hear about our work from other other groups that we've worked with, and they want to uh, develop their own media capacity and be able to control their narratives, tell their own stories through video. We've just recently branched into community radio as well, and we're just talking and exploring the idea of how we could work through music. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing and amazing and amazing. Um, this is a cons <coughs> this is a, a kind of um, an activity that I've been really curious about for a long time because it's the concept of indigenous ways people think that there is no interaction with the kind of present current world and actually that's not entirely true or true at all mm. and so you are the kind of key holder of um, bringing this digital transformation to indigenous peoples in a kind progressive and loving way and how So how is that received and how do you then, um, what do you do with the footage and how, how do you amplify the voices and give platform to the voices? Yeah, well I think what's key is, is, is the approach that we use, participatory video. It's a collective mm. filmmaking process, so it's not, it's not about one filmmaker who right. controls everything, has an artistic vision, right. tells a story. It's, it really is a collective process in, in terms of um, <coughs> selecting the themes that really matter to the community that they want to focus on for their films, mm. right through to storyboarding and planning it. It's a collective process. To filming it, the camera gets passed around. Mm. The, uh, the crew that, 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 we, that we train up actively go out looking for diverse perspectives, women, elders, children, mm. involve them in the film. And then in the evenings, they show back the rushes uh, every evening or every few nights so the whole community can mm. get involved and come and sort of check Uh, you know whether they're going along the right track, or if they, or if someone in the audience has an idea to, to say, suggest, oh, you're, you're on that topic, you must go and talk to so and so. You know, she's a real expert in in, in uh, how to look up, how to care for water, or whatever the themes are. So, it kind of, it's like a, an iterative process. It's um, we, we talk about it as a sort of action, reflection, action process. So, you, the action is the filmmaking, reflection is in the screenings. And then you then you take action again, and the film constantly evolves mm. over a, a few weeks or, or months. Mm. And it's the other important thing is it's entirely in the control in, of Indigenous people and mm. the communities. They control everything. Our role is to facilitate and to train up in the skills. And the way we do that is also pretty key. I think it's all through games. It's designed for people who've never been formally educated, mm. who may not read and write because we know that people who live 
in those communities, people who live through a situation, they're the real experts. It doesn't mm. matter whether they've been to university or got PhDs, you know, scientists and all of that. Actually, the real experts are the people who live that life, the community members. And often, um, they just need the tools, the right, the right tools to help document and share that knowledge. And video is so versatile because it's an oral medium. It captures the uh, oral tradition, or the, the way that indigenous people um, pass on knowledge is through storytelling and sitting around the fire. Um, it's orally, so video is brilliant for that. This is this is stunning because I, yeah, and I heard that um, most um, connections is through the sound and through audio, whether it's whether it's music or or storytelling. But you know, how is it that you bring these? What what are you actually trying to do with the footage and the screenings and then the the final videos that are coming out? Well, again, that's entirely the, the, the decision of, of the filmmakers of the community mm. themselves. So. Um, interestingly, by far the majority of films are made for local audience mm. and uh, they're made in local language. Um, they're not intended for outsiders. They're, they may be a lot longer than the kind of five minutes that you have to cram everything in for Western audiences. So they might be 20 minutes, half an hour. They're ongoing projects. It's more about documentation of culture, of traditional mm. knowledge. It's all about um, often the filmmakers, not always, but often they're young people, mm. uh, women, often women get involved in, the, in these projects. It's, a, it's kind of a, the technology acts as a hook because they want to learn how to use smartphones, how to use laptops, how to edit, how to get involved in digital me media and, and social media. And that's the hook. And then they realize that actually all the stories and all the knowledge is held by the elders. Mm. So it kind of gets them interested in talking to the elders again because, mm. you know, all over the world, even in traditional communities, that there's a real um, divide, uh, a real kind of break happening between the generations. And what we've seen is this work really helps to, to bring back sort of intergenerational dialogue. So that's really important. Can you please introduce yourselves separately and then together or together, however you want to do it? So I'm Laura Hopes, an artist, uh, member of Still Moving Collective. And I'm Leonie Hampton. I'm part of the artist collective Still Moving. Amazing. And there's one more. There's Martin Hampton, but he's not here. Martin has left the car. <laughs> yes. He's left the building. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what you've been doing over COP, please? Uh, well, it started with a 70-metre-long uh, illuminated sculpture on the banks of the Clyde, right next to the Green Zone, which reads No New Worlds. Mm. And... Uh, Ever since then, for the last week and a half, we've been racing around the city installing smaller illuminated light sculptures that are made up of phrases uh, generated by uh, community climate action groups around the country. Um, and also we've been working with Fahana Yamin from the Climate Vulnerable Forum and working with Indigenous elders and representatives here at COP to, to find out what phrases they would like to have kind of moving between the inner and outer areas of COP, so trying to bridge some of those walls to get those messages out. And these phrases that should be used going forward as well, because I think a lot of the conversations I've been having this week have been surrounding language. Um, people don't like nature, people don't like regeneration, they prefer regenerative cultures, they prefer 
um, they don't even like the term climate anymore. And so I'm struggling to keep up. So if you have any insights into these languages, then I'm all up for it. I mean, we've been thinking about language since we conceived No New Worlds, the 70-metre sculpture, to mark the sailing of the Mayflower, the 400 kind of year sailing, that idea of a cycle that we're still in in terms of colonisation. Um, and those patterns that of how we treat each other sort of that emerge then and treat land. And I think there is a real, there is something really interesting about language as a tool of domination, language as a parameter that contains and also really something to be careful of. Well, there are new words that can help us understand things and we have that in our small sculptures like we have Gallic word and a Welsh word which can't translate into English they hold a whole way of thinking which can help us as a way forward so when people say we don't want to use this word or we can use this word I mean the term new world Mm. is a very uh, freighted Mm. term um, it's it's important to think about it, but sometimes it can be distracting too. Sometimes we just keep renaming the same thing rather mm. than change the behaviour. Totally, and that's why I think people trying to change the term climate change or like climate emergency, the term climate, we've all finally understood and we finally got everyone, like almost everyone on the bandwagon of understanding that climate change is here. So mm. then to change it now, I don't know how I... I don't know how it can be, how it could actually happen around the world because we've struggled so long just to get people engaged. Can you tell me about the other phrases that you've used? Yes, yeah, so as Leonie said, we've got a Gaelic word, ducus, which mm. means uh, kind of a sense of place and a sense of belonging to the land, which is uh, really interestingly, I think, cited uh, at the Pollock Shields Bowling Green Community Garden, which is on Kenmuir Street, mm. which is famous uh, in the media for being the, the road where the residents united to stop the deportation of oh, a Sikh family. Beautiful. So it's really amazing that that sense of place isn't limited to the Gallic culture. It, it extends and is generous and hospitable. Similarly, we have the Welsh word hiraeth, which is a sort of very hard to translate. It kind of means a nostalgia or a longing for a homeland that doesn't necessarily still exist. And for me, that's incredibly poignant hearing, you know, the, the campaigners who spoke from prior to Greta, like Vanessa Nkate or the Laminga delegates here who are defending this homeland that maybe doesn't exist anymore. Or they're, they're really grasping onto that. Um, and then, you know, we've, we've found it really interesting to work with some quite um, legalistic phrases like mm. loss and damage, mm. which I didn't have a, a very clear understanding of until coming to COP. And, and I think it's sort of, it's sort of malleable in, you know, in what it means to different people. And so I think there's a sort of, there's a strange poetry in these phrases, even if they're quite stark language. And it's our intention... Um, in Exeter, in the Exeter Phoenix in December, that all of these phrases will come back together mm. as the alternate Christmas lights for the Exeter Phoenix oh, Gallery. I'm so there. I'm so, it's a really nice mixture of kind of environmental campaigning mm. terms and 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 what communities really feel needs to be said. And a, a community we worked with in Carbis Bay during the G7 summits, the phrase that they came up with was that they wanted to be heard. Mm. So that's come with us to COP and it mm. will return as well. listening in. My name is Sarah Lobo and I work for environmental law charity Client Earth. 
I'm very pleased to welcome to the program today Obed Osowu Adai, Managing Campaigner for EcoCare Ghana, who has been working with us in partnership for about six years. So Obed, thank you so much for being here. Um, so to set the scene for people who are listening in in Glasgow, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you do in Ghana and some of the issues facing cocoa production and trade? No, thank you very much, Sarah. Um, yes, um, for the past few years, actually I've been working in this sector for 15 years. But out of that 15, I've been working with clients for the past six years, basically using law as the entry point to community work. Um, especially when it comes to the cocoa sector, there has been a lot of challenges and the challenges did not start yesterday. Uh, it, they've been around since the inception of cocoa production in the country. Um, it has got to do with land rights, it has got to do with community access to lands and, and, and even the cocoa production uh, um, process. Um, I'm sure everybody likes a bar of chocolate, and I'm sure uh, I've been to London. I've been in Glasgow for a few um, days now, and anywhere I go, I see a lot of chocolate bars in, in the shops. And I'm sure somebody might be wondering, um, how did the chocolate bar end up where they are? The processes that the cocoa needs to go through uh, to, to, to become a chocolate bar. You, you might be surprised to know that when you are consuming a bar of chocolate, um, possibly you might be contributing to deforestation. You might also possibly be supporting um, um, human rights abuses in some countries. And I can use the case of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire since I'm well uh, vested in, in, in those countries. That it takes a whole lot of long process for farms to be to be established for cocoa to be nurtured planted and and the beans to be harvested and processed to end up as a chocolate bar um as a matter of fact uh, osfam did some study a few years ago and they observed that when you take a bar of chocolate um if it is hundreds hundred dollars or hundred pounds the cocoa farmer only gets 6% of the value, and majority of the value ends up with, with the manufacturers, with the traders, and all that. And this has a, a, a whole lot of cascading effect on tropical forests, on human rights, and I, I guess we'll get we'll get there very soon. But for us at EcoCare and in Ghana, what we are working with farmers and communities is to ensure that they sanitize their cocoa production value chain and supply chain, and ensure that uh, they are not causing deforestation and are not abusing their children in a, in, in in line of cocoa production. Thank you so much, and and I think it's maybe worth mentioning that most chocolate sold in the UK is made from cocoa beans imported from Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, um, responsible for about 60% of the global trade. Yeah. So it might be worth uh, speaking a bit about how we in the UK or in the EU even uh, can uh, try to strengthen the laws on the supply side uh, and the demand side to try to kind of address this issue. So um, I know there's a law going through the UK right now that's looking at trying to strengthen the kind of legal framework to prevent these sorts of deforestation issues in supply chains. So is that good enough from your perspective? Um, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> so probably, um, just as you rightly said, we'll take it from two angles. We'll take it from the consumer uh, angle and then the producer angle. Since I'm from a producer country, I'll start with the producer country one. It's great to have laws, and there are some very good laws in Ghana, but what we need to understand and appreciate is that the laws are 
only as good as the processes that leads to making those laws. And so in as much as we support the EU and the UK in their quest to ensure that they have consumer um, um, angle laws that will ensure that there's due diligence and proper uh, um, um, due process in putting cocoa beans in the, U in the EU and the UK market, I think it is also worth noting that they need to be equally the same commitment in producer countries to support producer countries, especially civil society, local communities, to, to, to be vested in the lawmaking process in their country. We, we, we can have a law that says that when you put a, a chocolate or a cocoa, um, which is not sustainable, onto the EU market, um, you, 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 you'll be punished. But how does the country that is producing the cocoa, how do they make their laws? How representative is the lawmaking process? Who are participating in making the laws in those countries? We think it is equally important for the UK and the EU to pay attention to the processes that leads to making laws in producer countries and not only be fixated on having their own due diligence laws in their country. You will have your due diligence laws in your country, but if you don't support developing countries and producer countries to also have stronger institutions, stronger representation, stronger participation in the lawmaking process in their country, you will have a substandard where I'm, I'm cocoa that is coming to the EU, EU and the UK market. So for 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 you as a consumer uh, um, 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 market or uh, somebody who consumes chocolate bar, you should be interested in the commitments of your countries towards producer countries. How are they supporting local communities? How are they supporting farmers to properly represent and participate in the lawmaking process in their own country? That's really interesting, and that does bring me into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is about community forestry management. So community forestry is this idea that uh, communities, local communities and indigenous communities that are living on forests and, and using forests for their benefits are actually proven to be some of the best guardians of the forests and the biodiversity that they store. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the sort of important role that communities can play in protecting forests and some of the obstacles that they face in actually uh, accessing the resources on that land and protecting the biodiversity that it stores. Thank you. Um, probably to take it from last Tuesday, there was this big announcement that was made um, um, during the COP26 um, 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 in Glasgow here. The countries, uh, developed countries, there was a promise to end deforestation by 2030 and a lot of money was pledged to support this. It's good and, and just as um, 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 people and advocates like myself have always stated, it is great to have some of these promises made and these pledges made, but how does it translate on the ground? That brings me to community forestry. Most of the lands that we produce cocoa or that are under threat of deforestation are community lands. People are staying on these land. People's livelihood depends on these land. So when you want to minimize deforestation, stop deforestation, you need to recognize the role that local communities can play. When you concentrate on planting trees as a way of offsetting uh, your, your, your carbon emission and all that, that is not an effective way to stop deforestation. The most 
facts and, and the, the proven way of stopping deforestation is to guarantee local communities' rights to their land. They are, they, their livelihoods depend on these land, and they are the best to protect these lands. Nobody can I mean, convince me that somebody staying in, 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 in probably in London, in Glasgow, in New York, is more vested in the lands that are in Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire than the communities stay on those lands. Their livelihoods, their children's livelihood, and their ancestors are on those lands, and they value the land. And they are more committed to protecting the trees and the forest on those lands than some multinational uh, company or some politicians sitting somewhere in, 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 in Glasgow or, or at COP26 and making promises. So for us as campaigners and as um, NGOs that are working with communities, we have come to the realization, and this has not just been uh, yesterday or today that we came to, it has been through a lot of years of working with communities, we have realized that when communities are empowered, when they are resourced and, 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 and their capacities built, they are the best protectors of the forest and they are our surest bits of ensuring that we minimize deforestation, not tree planting. You can plant 20 trees, but if you don't guarantee tree tenure for local communities, they will cut down these trees. And and, and that is the the, 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 the the fact on the ground. For example, I can use Ghana as a case study. When you come to Ghana, there is a law that um, takes um, the, the right away from communities and vests that right in, in, in the precedent. The law says that when you have a tree on your land that you did not plant, that tree belongs to the state and it is vested in the present. What that means is that I might have my land and when a tree is on it, I cannot use that tree, but somebody can be given the right to come and harvest that tree on my land. So if this situation exists, what motivation do I have to keep those trees on my land? I might as well cut down the tree and destroy it than to leave it for it to mature so that some logger from probably in London or somewhere will come and, uh, and cut that tree down. So those are the facts on the ground and we need to guarantee communal rights to natural resources, communal rights to, to their own lands to manage it effectively. They have proven that they are the best managers of the resource and the only thing they need is a little bit of capacity, a little bit of resources, and they can protect the forest and they can ensure that these commitments that have been made at COP26 will be fulfilled and not just planting trees. That has proven not to be the most effective way of stopping deforestation. Thank you so much, Obed. I mean, that's really interesting, uh, I'm sure, to our audiences because I think oftentimes this, the importance of communities in protecting forests is really overlooked and it really um, is important at the local level, uh, no matter what the kind of national or international laws are. Um, but, but kind of moving towards these national laws, I know that Ghana just last week passed a new wildlife bill that you were very involved in uh, for over 15 years. Yes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and, and sort of how you see that maybe impacting biodiversity and, and deforestation in Ghana? Oh, thank you very much. Yes, so um, we haven't passed the bill yet. It has come out of cabinet. So for almost 15 years, this bill has been going back and forth. And just last Monday or Tuesday, it moved away. It got um, cabinet approval to go to parliament for it to be passed. We have assurances from the parliament of Ghana that once it gets there, it will be fast-tracked because, I mean, they know that this law will guarantee uh, um, community rights. And in this law, there is a concept called community resource management 
management area, what we call it CREMA in Ghana. And this CREMA is a concept of devolving management authorities from the, 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 the state to local communities, which is meant to empower local communities to ensure that they protect their own forests. And this brings me back to the point I was making that it's not just about having laws, it's also about having laws that were made through a process of consultative and participatory process. This wildlife bill that we are talking about, I can say on authority, some of the chapters were written by civil society. We have gone back and forth with, 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 with state institutions to craft this law to recognize the inherent um, 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 benefits of, of, of local communities and also to, to guarantee the rights of local communities. So we are really, really looking forward to to, to uh, this bill being passed. And I, I think this is some of the things that we are um, employing institutions and governments to look at to ensure that when they are supporting um, um, countries or when they are making pledges at COP, they will make sure that it trickles down to the community level and that these promises really translate into forming or formulating laws such as the wildlife bill in Ghana that will guarantee community rights to their lands and will give them access to managing the resources in developing countries. Thank you. That's really a wonderful overview of what you've been working on. I, and maybe just one final question to zoom back out to our uh, listeners here in Glasgow. So how can people who are listening in today get involved? Uh, what message do you have for people for how they can, I don't know, pressure their local politicians or uh, follow along and get involved in some of the work that you're doing back in Ghana? Well, thank you very much. So um, if you are somebody who values the climate, who values the future of your children, um, you should be interested in how forests are being managed, especially in tropical countries. Um, we are at COP and one of the IPCC reports show that tropical forests have that capacity to, as a sink, to, to take a lot of these greenhouse gases. So what you can do at your local level, at your uh, provincial level, is to first Probably, and if you are in Glasgow, you are in London, wherever that you are, find out about a right-based organization within your, your, your locality who are interested in supporting some of the work that is being done in developing countries. Then, at the, at the, at the government level, you can begin to question your, your politicians. And when you go to the ballot, when you go to vote, look at... Um, politicians and, 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 and people who are committed to the environment and you vote such people into, into power. And after voting, follow up, write letters to them. Follow up with the work that they are doing and the commitments that they are making. Are they following up with these commitments? And of course, resources, developing countries and, and communities that are around the forest. The forest is their source of livelihood. So if they are to protect these forests, they would need alternative sources of livelihood. And any penny or, or pen that you, 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 you have, you could also contribute to a, a company or an organization that are um, focused on protecting community lands whether in Glasgow or wherever that that, that these uh, organizations might be so and also very importantly when you are when you are consuming as a consumer you should be aware and take cognizance of consuming products that are certified to be coming from uh, a, a protected area so there are fair trade certifications there are FSC certification all these licenses and and, 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 and marks guarantee that 
the product that you are consuming has been produced in a sustainable manner. So you can begin to do some of these things and you'll be contributing your little quota to protecting forests and protecting the climate that, that we all enjoy. Thank you so much, Obed. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and to have you on the show today. Thank you very much, Sarah. Next up, music and climate. We are talking to musicians across multiple disciplines to gather inspiration and ideas. Hello, this is Hayden Thorpe for Inside Cop on Clydebilt Radio. Throughout the summit, I'll be chatting with remarkable fellow artists, gathering inspiration and ideas on how we tackle the climate emergency alongside some select musical offerings. Today I'm so pleased to be speaking with an old friend of mine, the fabulous Hannah Peel. It's been wonderful to watch Hannah's ever-growing stature as a composer and arranger. She's worked with the likes of Greenpeace, the Para Orchestra and Paul Weller, alongside her own successful career as a solo artist. Her latest album, Fur Wave, released this year, was nominated for the Mercury Music Prize. Of the album, she said, I'm drawn to the patterns around us, and the cycles in life that will keep evolving and transforming forever. Fur wave is defined by its continuous environmental changes, and there are so many connections to those patterns echoed in the electronic music. It's always an organic discovery of old and new. Let's hear a track from the record. This is Emergence in Nature. inspiring track. I wanted to ask Hannah, how did nature come to play such an important role in making the album? I guess because I was making a lot of music that was quite patterned and and electronic and I moved to the coast as well during the first kind of sketches of the record. Um, you start to observe the patterns in the sea, the patterns in the sky rather than when you're living in a city you kind of become blind to those elements. Um, and yeah, so I started looking at the different patterns in nature. So obviously we have carbon cycle, we have like wind shadows where um, plants won't grow where there is a shadow of the wind. <laughs> it all sounds so po poetic. And then fir wave, which um, is where you get fir trees on a mountainside that uh, the, the trees at the very front will get kind of battered down by the wind or, you know, um, corroded by the wind and that leaves the trees at the back to grow stronger and then gradually the process becomes like a wave on a mountainside because that process over years you see the the growth and the the new and the old trees um, which I thought was really really beautiful and it's only in certain parts of the world so yeah that's what inspired the album title. Wow so you almost drew the unspoken poetry of nature into your work which is almost kind of 
a reversal on the usual processes of making, which is to, I say, usual. What we're used to is kind of people drawing from within, you know, that kind of summoning their own inner story, when in fact you were finding the everyday stories in the nature and the environment around you and giving them kind of voice, as it were. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that it's important and we were definitely in a period of when this record came out, particularly that everyone was starting to notice nature and and listen more and be observant of what is around us and what we have. It not just in nature, but in life and necessity and I guess how materialistic we've all become. You know, we forget about the natural world outside and the sounds of the birds until it's actually we are silent and then we can actually observe it. So but I guess with Furwave as well, I wanted a record that felt like we were emerging from nature and celebrating that again. So like the main kind of track, Emergence in Nature, is really about that celebration of colour and life. And I kind of drew on, you know, like at the, at the end of World War Two, you had like the that whole era of like um, colourful cars and clothing and then we had the 60s and the 70s and it just felt like life was just bursting out of, of us and creativity and I felt that maybe after lockdown we would need some of that colour as a reminder. So. Yeah, I, I love that. I, it's, it's interesting to me how you were inspired by the art made during and post-war, you know, because it seems... Uh, at this moment in time, not only the pandemic, but with COP26 and the kind of collective reckoning we're having about the environment and the way we live our lives, it almost feels like a war footing. You know, we're having to really reassess our entire way of living and our complete value system. And mm -hmm. there is potentiality in that, as you say, to create beauty and colour. And it needn't necessarily be a destructive force you know it's not about kind of deconstructing the lives we have it's actually about reimagining those lives you know and I, I think that's yeah uh what I found so powerful about Furwave especially was um the the abundance of kind of color and energy within it you know it, it captures a, a certain energy that is available to us Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, thank you. Because I think that's a lovely way to put it. And um, I guess, you know, there's some people like to kind of rant and rave about a lot of things that are happening. And I always kind of take the more sideward step, which is to celebrate what we have so that you become inspired to keep what we have and to treasure it and, and cherish it. And I think it's really important to to draw on those influences to balance because you know like I guess what's happening quite a lot of the time especially with with COP and everything else that's happening with climate change and the unthinkable almost is that we it's so it's so easy to look at the devastation but actually harnessing it and making something of it is really important. Yeah, and I, I guess that feeds into me talking about your now seminal outfit at the Mercury Awards this year <laughs> and how that in itself was actually uh, the reformation of a natural product. Yeah, it was made from a eucalyptus tree, which is insane. 
Yeah. So for those of you who don't know this outfit, it was it was made. Am I saying right in saying it was Kitty Joseph? Or, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It, Kitty Joseph designed a dress that is seems to be most of the colours within the Pantone range formed onto this almost geisha-like dress, which Hannah wore so fabulously at the Mercury Music Prize Awards. And uh, it actually drew a lot of attention and there are various articles about it. And you're saying she made it out of eucalyptus trees. Yeah, and it's like, it, it's such a strange, so basically it used 90% less water than any other type of material manufacturing. Um, and they grow the eucalyptus trees in the driest parts of the country. I don't, I'm not sure which country she got it from, but um, it's, you know, it's highly sustainable. And also the material is like a combination between cotton and silk. It's got a really beautiful flow to it and it makes beautiful shirts and trousers and dresses. And yeah, I think it's a, a genius material and I, I can't wait for it to be more widely available. It's almost futuristic, isn't it? And that's one of the strange <laughs> kind of creative synergies between using alternate products or being inspired by nature, as it were. The results are often almost futuristic in themselves. And I would, I would parallel that to um, electronic music too. In some respects, for some reason, the, the, the pulses and the beats and the kind of primal use of rhythms that electronic music kind of occupies ends up feeling very natural world in its own way yeah yeah it's amazing when that happens <laughs> I, I think that's the beauty of like especially analog synthesizers that you you have the nuances and and I guess that electricity is energy is is all around as we use it we harness it and you know, there's that energy is no different to a human playing a violin. That it's the same amount of energy that's taken. It's just a different instrument. So, I think it, if it's used in the right way, it definitely feels like you can manipulate it and make it as natural and effervescent, in that it feels like it's of another world. I think that's really, really magical with electronic music.
Introducing Eno Insights. This part of the show will take a dive into Brian Eno's mind, thinking of innovative ways to save the planet. Yes, it's all looking good. A big hello and welcome to Brian Eno. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Hi. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Let's dive in. So I'm very interested in technology and I don't think nature has all the technologies we need. Um, uh, I think there are a lot of very, very interesting new ideas coming up, which are basically technical ideas and they're novelties to nature. Um, and I, I think that some people are frightened by that, but it's what humans have always done anyway. The thing I would be frightened about is the speed with which we do it. Um, you know, people have been doing genetic engineering for about 10,000 years. We only get frightened about it when it goes into labs, with some justification, because it's then done much faster and much more efficiently when it's done at a local level by crop hybridization, you get a lot of time to see what the results will be. So I can understand the fear, but the fear should be about the procedure, not the process. The processes are things we've all been doing for a long time. We've been genetic engineering, geoengineering, um, doing all the things that environmentalists usually don't like. And, and we consistently keep rejecting one of the best solutions we ever came up with, which was nuclear power. Um, most environmentalists hate it, and I think they are absolutely stupid for hating it because I think it's an aesthetic choice that they've made, not a, not a sensible choice. It's a choice based on the idea that there's something dirty and unpleasant and unnatural about nuclear power. It's a lot less unnatural than digging coal out of the ground and burning it and s sending all the crap into the atmosphere. Anyway, that's my personal uh, thing on nuclear. I, I keep... Well, I hope I do because it, really it is so stupid that we don't take this seriously. You know, if you look at the map of Europe uh, on my little app, which tells you what the carbon footprint of each country is at this moment in time... I'll just show it to you because it's very interesting. Electricity map. So, carbon intensity. The, the darker the brown, this is, this is consumption at the moment, mm. right? The darker the brown, the worse. That's more, more and more carbon. Carbon. So, you can see Poland is lot. Which is the greenest country in Europe? I don't know what that could no, It's France. France, I know, I know, and it's a nuclear place. It's because 70% of their electricity is being generated from nuclear. So would you... It's been like that for years and years. Would you choose nuclear over renewables, or is no. that a whole of it? It's just in, no. the, in the transition period, you would say we should go for nuclear. I would say you definitely have to in the transition period, but you have to for, for afterwards as well. Renewables, wonderful as they are, um, they take up a huge amount of land. This is the problem, that people think renewables kind of come free, that they don't cost anything. But they do cost something. They cost land. They cost space. There are also some positives and innovative aspects to ocean and sea wind turbines. Having their own ecosystems and then working mm -hmm. together, but 
yes, a lot of people think they're an eyesore and you can physically see them and they're taking over space. So that is understood. Windmills are an eyesore as yes. well. Everything's an eyesore, you know, except lovely manicured fields. So then do meadows. we stop needing energy entirely and have a whole new system? Or are the systems localized in the community that are smaller so they don't need to be big yes. whopping eyesores? That's right. And then everybody can use as much as the natural lands can offer. And we love our source of energy, whatever it is, whether it's a waterfall or whether it's a underground heating or... Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, there... There are some really, really interesting new developments in nuclear which um, offer a lot of possibilities, like the Chinese are now working with thorium reactors. Thorium is an entirely different material from uranium. It doesn't stay radioactive for such a long time. In fact, about 50, one fiftieth of the time that, um, that um, uranium stays radioactive. It doesn't have to be near water, so it doesn't have to be on unstable coastal lands. It doesn't, it's not water-cooled. It doesn't go into um, explosive feedback spirals. It just sets solid if, if something goes wrong. It doesn't go out of, go out of control. It becomes static. Um, there are so many things about this that... And also, sorry, the most important thing is that you can make very small thorium reactors. So you can have a local Mm, reactor. Interesting. Um, You know, we're just completely being stupid about this and thinking, I I just am so frustrated by Greenpeace and the Green Party and so on for saying so many things that are obviously true, like renewables, we've got to do it. Of course, that's right. Nobody would argue with that. But nuclear, oh no, we can't do that. You know, what is this based on? It's based on aesthetics. So, so your love of nuclear comes from the fact that you think it's the cleanest source? It's certainly the cleanest source for stable power. Do yeah. you not fear that the waste could be used as some form of negative or some form of wartime I, thing or something? Well, I fear all kinds of waste. The waste that we are generating at the moment is going up into the sky. And Germany, which used to be a clean country when it was a nuclear-powered country, is now producing tons of waste, and it's going into the sky as we speak. So if we're talking about waste, the choice is not actually between renewables and coal. Renewables won't replace coal for a very long time. The only thing that will replace coal in the near future is nuclear. Am I really losing my head? Really losing my head? My head? My head? My head? Broken words want to say a huge thank you to Hot Chip, Cosmo Sheldrake, Sally Mohook, Hannah Peel, Obed, Osowo, Adai, Client Earth, Brian Eno, Mingo Indigenat, Laura Hopes, Leonie Hampton, Martin Hampton, Still Moving Collective, and we also have Luke. Thank you.